Welcome back to About South. This week, we're talking to Akbar Imhotep and Kaylin Thomas from the Wren's Nest, which is just around the corner from where we do most of our work for the podcast in the historic West End of Atlanta, Georgia. The Wren's Nest is the historic home of Joel Chandler Harris, but over the last hundred years, it's become much more than that in this community. Its history is not always easy to understand. It has a long, complicated place in the tradition of American storytelling and African-American storytelling, as you'll hear from Kaylin and Akbar. Full disclosure, I actually serve on the board of the Wren's Nest, and so I'm not exactly a disinterested party in this week's episode. At the same time, both of our guests talked freely about what they see as the vision for the house and the museum and the cultural programs they run. I'm Gina Kaysen, and this is About South. So today we are here in the historic West End, also where About South is brought to you from, so we're in our home neighborhood at one of the cultural beacons of the neighborhood, the Wren's Nest. And we are speaking with Akbar Imhotep and Kaylin Thomas about the history of the space, their involvement, and what they see as the best future and the vision for the Wren's Nest as a cultural organization in the West End. And I'm really excited to be here. Um, We go sometimes very far for about South, interviews, but I'm glad that I'm doing something here just around the corner. All right, so to begin, um, if I could just ask each of you to introduce yourself a bit and your history with the organization and what brings you back to this place. I first found out about the Wren's Nest about five years ago when I was a producer for AIB Television, which is Atlanta Interfaith Broadcasters. And I was the creator and host of a show called Life Plus. It was a show for active seniors. And I decided I needed some different locations around Atlanta to do my standups. And I chose the Wren's Nest. I had never been here before. And I thought, oh, I'll do a story on them as well. And I came and interviewed Jerry McWilliams. And I was like, how have I been in Atlanta for like 30 years and not known about this place. So I uh, decided that I wanted to work with them and I ended up first volunteering as a mentor with their scribes writing program. And then when an opening came about for program director, I applied and luckily I got it. And I've been here for almost three years. It'll be three years in November. Wow, okay, and Akbar? You have been here longer than three years. I've been here a little bit longer than three years, and uh, I wish I could go back 32 years and see the date that I came here on a field trip with the Phyllis Wheatley YWCA. And uh, I have been working as a puppeteer at the Center for Puppetry Arts, and that job had kind of phased out. And the only work I had was with an after-school program from like three to six or four to six or something. And one day, 
we brought the children here. And so we brought the children, and I told Karen Kelly, who was the assistant executive director, that I'm a storyteller. Mainly I had storytelling cards. I'd only been a storyteller for a few days. <laughs> and I gave her my card. And since I had my mornings available, I was pretty much able to come whenever they called me. So that started my official relationship with the Wren's Nest. If I could go back before coming here on a field trip, I never knew what this place was. There used to be some big bushes over the driveway and it was like a gauntlet or something from the outside. So I had lived in the West End or Oakland City a very long time, but had never been on the property until I was working with the after-school program in 1985. And this was after reading an article about the Wren's Nest expanding its vision and using storytelling as a way to connect with the community. So it was almost like we was born or made for each other. I was becoming a storyteller and they wanted to use storyteller as a link with the community and having my mornings available, here I sit. 32 <laughs> years later. And that's that's how I came. And for our listeners who don't know what the Wren's Nest is, who are kind of like even the two of you, they may, our listeners are all over the world, but even our Atlanta listeners who don't know what this place is, would one of you or both of you like to speak to what is the Wren's Nest? Um, what has it been and what is it now? Well, um, I'm sure Akbar can go back to even further back. Uh, when it when he first started but um, one of the things we always mention in our tours that we give people is that it is the home of Joel Chandler Harris who was the person who recorded the um, Br'er Rabbit tales that he heard while a young boy on a plantation where he worked uh, from ages 14 to 17 he is a white man but when he was on the plantation, he lived among the enslaved people there and heard the Br'er Rabbit tales being told. And so when he became older and worked at uh, a newspaper in Savannah and then eventually the Atlanta Constitution, he ended up uh, turning those stories into little cartoons in the Constitution at first. And then they became so popular that people told him he ought to do a book. And that's when he compiled all the stories into a book. And those tales became very popular. Very, yes. Worldwide. And so, right, just, just to build on that, I always call this place the historic home of Joe Chana Harris, where he literally wrote the stories of it. And then, you know, I'm not, I don't know him as a cartoonist. That's some history that I need to know. And now, uh, he didn't do the drawings, he just wrote the story. He just wrote Somebody the story. else did Someone the drawings. Did yeah. the drawings. So I, I I really need to learn more about that. Because how I, I kind of heard the story was after he published The Tar Baby, everybody said, more, 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 more. And so he did more, 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 more. But to me, the genius of the of the book and the stories is, is the literary situation that he creates for nine books. And what I mean by that is, he creates a world of the critters, bruh rabbit, bruh foxes, cow, bruh bull, bruh fox, bruh, bruh possum, all of them. They have their own world. 
And then he has the world of the people. And every evening, this little boy leaves grandma and dad and mom and goes out to Uncle Remus' shack. And Uncle Remus tells them a story. And he maintains that situation from the time in the first book, the little boy. And by the time we get to book number nine, the son of that little boy is going to Uncle Remus. And he creates two worlds of languages. The critics speak one language and the other people, it's all English. But the critics speak in one dialect and the regular people speak in another, I won't say dialect, but dialect. Then on the other side of the appropriation, I, I, I remember when, I, when you guys were doing the dialogue on appropriation, see, see I, know, I know people in New York that have published books of Uncle Remus Tales. I know people from North Carolina. Matter of fact, J Jackie Torrance, she said, I, who is Uncle Remus? Her grandfather and her uncle had told her the Burr Rabbit stories. So she didn't know them through Uncle Remus. She knew them through Grandpa and Uncle Joe. And then people in Louisiana who knew these tales, not so much through Uncle Remus, but through ancestors coming down and passed them on. And, and I'm just so thankful for them because were it not for just a few threads of people and George Chandler Harris with the, with the mother load to record and publish so many of them, these stories would be basically forgetting, for, forgotten and forbidden to be told. Right, so there's something there that because of when he published, he put a stamp on them that made it acceptable that otherwise it wouldn't have been, it either could have been lost or people wouldn't have listened to it in the same way or recognized the genius of it. And the, of absolutely the correct people did not get the credit at the time, right? They didn't get the money right. or the credit, but the story survives. I think a lot of times those judgments can come from outside the community, if that makes sense, that people come mm -hmm. in and say, oh, that, that shouldn't be that. And it's like, well, but are you asking the people, the Uncle Joes of the world who passed on the stories, are you asking them? Like, who mm -hmm. are you asking? Because it's sort of, it's almost like a reclaiming of the story. Like, now right. you don't get to have this because we think it's this. Right. right, right. I mean, it's a sticky situation. Absolutely, and we really do believe that African Americans especially should reclaim them because they're wonderful stories and they always have a great moral to the story. People learn from those stories, especially children. And so I do think that it's something that African Americans need to come back to and, and take a new listen to the stories and, and really um, appreciate that this is part of our heritage. And I wonder too about like, um, why it seems it's especially important for African-American people in this country to have that connection, to realize these stories come from a homeland and a place that is important, regardless of diaspora and enslavement, that these stories have done something and they've traveled and they've lived. How do you each see your role 
in that tradition. Mm. Now, me, in the, in the tradition of storytelling, I'm actually a part of a group, national group, and our motto is like, in the tradition. And in the tradition, we, 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 we want to perpetuate and preserve our oral history through the medium of storytelling. And so part of it is just doing the work, but doing the work in a relevant kind of way. And uh, I say relevant as well as professional in the spirit of excellence way. So the connection comes from, and even when I speak of it as sacred ground, sacred moments, you have to connect with who you're talking to and they have to enjoy it. You can't do storytelling as a lecture. You can't do it as a preaching moment. You have to do it as a us moment, as a connection, as a revealing moment. Right. Well, also I see, um, I see us carrying out Joel Chandler Harris's legacy um, of wanting um, the African Americans at that time to be able to read and write. Mm. He really believed that. And he's written books about it that did not do well in that time because his sentiment was before it's his time. Mm. You know, he really was a forward thinker. And a lot of people were not ready for blacks to learn to read and write, but he wanted that. And so we feel like we're carrying on the storytelling and the tradition of oral history, but we're also carrying on the writing piece of it with the writing programs we have for the students, which is called the Scribes Program that we do with two of the the, uh, middle schools in the neighborhood. And the majority, I would say 99 to 100% of the students are African-American. So we're helping them to learn how to tell their own stories and getting those published in a book. So it's like, okay, Joel Chandler Harris always wanted, you know, to know that blacks would be allowed to read and write. And now we're carrying that out now with um, making sure that we have young authors, young black authors. Um, But we have um, some students who are um, also Hispanic and Asian as well in these programs. And those programs, um, they're both in the West End. Yes. And what types of activities, how do they run? How do you recruit the students? And what labor goes in on your end to make sure that you are mentoring these students and writing in this authorship? Well, uh, there's a lot of labor involved with it, but um, one of the most challenging pieces of it is getting the mentors. Um, We like to get professional or semi-professional writing mentors for each student. So however many mentors we can get is how many students we can work with. And so that's our biggest challenge every every session. But um, one of the other things is putting together the curriculum of what they will write about. We give them a new theme every year of what they'll write about. They write fictional stories, but they have to include five actual facts in those stories. And um, this year at Brown Middle School, they're writing on the theme of if I were president. So that should be really interesting to see what they come up with. And um, this past summer, we just had the debut of Bright Ideas, which was the book of Kip's Drive Academy. And their theme was 
um, inventors of color. And so they wrote about real life inventors, uh, whether they were African-American, uh, Latino, uh, Native American or Asian American, and um, they wrote fictional stories about those inventions. And so we really enjoy working with the students because they have such wonderful imaginations. They come up with wonderful stories, but our process is every week for 12 weeks, we are showing them how to come up with characters, how to come up with an outline, how to figure out what they wanna say in the story, what type of character the person is, and um, learning how to do dialogue and not just narrate a story. And so um, each week they learn something new. I just been thinking about like my family is really big on storytelling. Mm -hmm. I mean, we just every Sunday at my grandma's house growing up, lunch was at eleven thirty. Um, people were always like, "How do you work that out with church?" I was like, "I don't really know. I don't remember, <laughs> but I know my uncle Cecil started eating lunch at eleven thirty, and you had to be like that was the time." <laughs> okay. I love it. And people, we just were really um, you had to be in my family growing up. You had to be able to tell your story well, and mm -hmm. they had to be funny. Like, oh, had to be funny. You had to be funny. Even if it was a serious story, like, and we just sort of had almost like our own mythology, like this time Uncle Cecil accidentally ate trash, <laughs> or the time, you know, my grandma dressed up as a ghost to scare my dad when he was little. I mean, and they weren't, sometimes they were bigger stories, but you just had that. That connection. Yeah, and that learning you kind of learned how to tell the story by handing it off. You know right. what I mean? Like, when I still sit down with my father, this there's a little bit of a back and forth. And I don't ever remember learning how to tell those stories, but you just had to pay attention. Oh, right. Ooh, pay attention. And mm. know, like, yeah. how it went. Or mm -hmm. Yeah, I love that. I love that. And I think a lot of um, families have probably gotten away from that. But when I was younger we all ate dinner together mm. and that's when the stories came out you know of people's days and you know and there was some funny stuff and there was some sad stuff and you know but that's where you told your stories at the dinner table so yeah, yeah. you know what was sitting here reflected on the whole nether era yeah and stuff yeah where people <laughs> actually took time right to listen to share and there was something in what we were sharing that made those moments unforgettable. You know, Kaylin kind of focused on the African-American side of this. And you know, so many people have so little need for stories. <laughs> Being a storyteller, I probably shouldn't say this to a mixed audience, but uh, it's like, I don't know how to word it. I, I grew up Thank God to my uncle and Mr. Bess and the Sunday school teacher and my cousin Willie C. And they told us stories. But now people are like either yeah. killing a thousand people with a video game or checking their Facebook pages just to see and almost don't have time for stories. And I, 
thank God that the school system and libraries and the museums value it. Otherwise, people like me would be totally out of work. And um, I hope there is a time, and it'll come from just telling it, telling it, telling it, and then people heard stories passing it on to theirs. But life is moving so fast, sometimes I don't think people have time for stories. Unless there's ex explosions, or we have a, or we have a, a electrical power outage, and then all you can do is read or listen to stories. Like Especially we just at night, did. I know we yeah. just had that. I mean, yeah. just sit up and talk to each other, tell <laughs> right. a story. Exactly. Right. Yeah. But I think that that's also part of the reason why we appreciate the fact that these stories were preserved, mm -hmm. because there are so many elders in every culture that tell stories and then the elders die off and if the younger people aren't retelling those stories those stories get lost and so to have them on paper mm -hmm. you know in a book is really wonderful because that way it is really preserved for generations right especially akbar you as as a storyteller what's the value of this for the future like why should we be listening to stories wow to me, stories connect. Stories connect us. Stories connect audience to speaker, and then even beyond that, stories. There's something in the stories themselves. Yeah, I don't get too psychological and philosophical, but stories kind of reflect the human experience. And with, when I'm kids, a simple story like. Brad Terrapin shows his strength, you know, where all the animals are bragging and boasting about what they could do, you know. And uh, Brad Bell says, Brad Terrapin, oh, you the slowest, ain't you? <laughs> hey, you the slowest. And Terrapin looks at Bear and says, Brad Bear, I'm the one that should show you. He didn't say I am. He said, I's the one that can show you that I'm the most strongest. And so what he does, he ends up tricking Bear. He ties a rope to a stump to a root of a tree in the creek. And Bear tries to pull him out, but he can't, right? And so Terrapin, when he finally give up, Bear comes down and says, Brother Terrapin, I don't know how in the world you did it, but I guess you the most smartest, okay? And so I say, it's a funny situation, but how many times have we been around people that just, hey man, I got the biggest car, I got the biggest house, I got the prettiest wife. I got the this, the that, the other. And then somebody else may have something else. I want to say, we all have value in what we have. And then it's not so much to show people up or to come out on top, but to know that each one of us has something. And when I say stories, stories connect us. Stories reflect the, um, dare I say, the human experience. And sometimes it takes a little digging to get get to it, but it is there. And and I used to think that we are stories, our lives are our stories, but it's, it's a story that our children, our descendants, our relatives will pass on about my cousin that worked at AIB and CNN and then at the Red's Nest and then she helped these children to write stories and they must have published about 10 or 20 books. Mm -hmm. And some of those people that she helped mentor are now that boy who just won the Pulitzer Prize. He was one of her students. 
And see, that becomes like our stories. And a good storyteller is not just a storyteller. I mean, when you tell your stories and when our other ramblers tell their stories, a lot of times they really do do it in a way where it's not just the children who are enraptured, the adults are enraptured as well, because that's a good storyteller, you know, who can really pull you in and make you feel like you're there, you know? You have to connect. It's, it's about, all about connecting. And with me, it's times from the moment, like, how you doing? Where you from? I'm here to tell you some stories. What you said about connection, you know, stories do, I tell students in my class all the time that, you know, we like to think of therapy or psychological help as a 21st century invention, but people have always had religion and stories that teach people lessons and help people think about themselves and their lives. And mm -hmm. humans need that space. You need it psychologically. Like you need I it. I agree. That's right. Beginning, middle, end. It's there. And sometimes I wish I'd gone off and studied storytelling and all of that, but I'm an actor who came into storytelling. But realized from the moment that I started doing my first workshop that this is not just a job. This is sacred time. And I've carried that throughout my whole storytelling life. This is a, a big house with a lot of history in the middle of the West End that is facing a lot of quick change. Mm -hmm. And this is a space of story, but it's also, I mean, this is one of the anchors of the arts community in Atlanta and especially in this neighborhood. And what do y'all see, I mean, what's the responsibility there to the community? Well, I think first off, by us having been in the community for so long, by this museum having been in the community for so long, uh, first as a house in the late 1800s and then as a museum in the early 1900s, and now um, it has seen all the changes from way before the gentrification <laughs> we're dealing with now. You know, it's seen the different races of people that have come through, uh, the different types of um, neighborhood, the different way that this neighborhood was from the very beginning. And so I think that's something is that we are a constant in this neighborhood and have been for over a hundred years. So that's one thing. But the other thing is that we have to be able to continue to uh, engage with our neighbors. And one of the ways that we do that outside of the um, writing program with the schools is we have events here. And so we have quite a few musical events. We have a health fair. Um, we've even had a Marcus Garvey festival and uh, we have them in our backyard. And we also have um, times when we have free day at the Wren's Nest, like during our holiday open house in December and also tomorrow, part of Smithsonian Museum Day, it's free. And so we have a lot of examples like that where we welcome the community to come in and they don't even have to pay and just come and see what this is all about. 
Um, and I think that it's important for us to stay engaged with the community, not only with events, but um, also with um, some of the things that are happening socially in the community. And that includes people talking about things like gentrification. And we had um, something called Conversations on Race last year and the year before where we had communities uh, members come in and discuss things that were concerned that they were concerned about or something that was just the talk of the day in the news and we had the neighbors to talk about um, what they thought of it and how they were affected by it and we look at it as we're allowing people to tell their stories you know and that's our job to continue to tell stories to continue to let others tell their stories and so that's how we see this it's it's that dining room table right exactly and a safe place where people can actually say how they're feeling and not have us do anything that would you know like we always say whatever you say in this room stays in this room so it doesn't go out there or on facebook or anything like that right it's anyone i mean this is a little bit of the problem with the quote-unquote online conversation is anyone can throw anything out there and they don't you don't have to listen. Right. You know, it's not a real engagement versus if you're sitting around in a room with people, exactly. you have to say your piece and you have to look at someone and respond right. and consider them. Yeah. It's just such a different dynamic. You yes. can see their emotions mm-hmm. as they're telling you. You can't see that on Facebook. Right. You know, you can see their intent. You can see their intention. You can see or you can sort of feel their intention of what they're saying. And um look into their eyes and I think that means a lot I mean it really helps to tell the story when you can actually see the person Mm -hmm. right and I also you know I mean the history I know there was a period in the wren's nest as a museum and an organization it had a long history of segregation yes um and in this neighborhood also like what's the even though that's now been 30 plus years since that ended um how do your visions for this space, like how do you get to a healing of that? Like is there a possibility in this space that by people coming together and telling their stories and listening, can you start to redress and heal that? And I don't know, I mean, that's a big question for the entire world, yes, but yeah. what's it's the tiny piece that you can do here? I think be true, be true to our mission. And as, as I listened to you and uh, Kaylin speak, and earlier you had asked me, like, what was the biggest change or difference? And I mentioned thing about the outdoor space and the briar patch. But I think, too, the, just the, the involving of the community, like that big stage set there, I think probably the first 25 years of my experience with the wren's nest was probably hardly ever used. Mm. And in the last, dare say, seven, eight years, it's become the go-to venue. I think the jazz matters. People do something here monthly. Mm -hmm. The the Marcus Garvey people have been here, reggae festivals, the whole thing. 10, 15 years ago, nobody in this community would imagine a Marcus Garvey or reggae festival happening on that stage. Right. So with that board put in motion back in 1984, when they said this is a new day for the wren's nest, 
We're opening the doors to the community and we're gonna let storytelling be our primary vehicle for doing that. We're on mission and, and it has evolved. Like, and I, I'm almost sorry to say that I haven't been involved with the, the scribe program, but to know that there are mentors, and you said professional and semi-professional writers coming to help middle school children become writers and tellers of their story. That is, that is so humongous. And then the healing. What, 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 what did the doctor say to, to make something heal? Gotta wanna be healed? Yeah. And I just feel for that. Sometimes I don't think people want to be healed. <laughs> it's like, I go in and out of a lot of circles and some of them are only there for a minute. Because I hear people holding on to pain and anger and stuff. When you can, you can just let it go. I know it's easy to say that, but I think the healing is like a two-way street. You have, to, you have to want it. And then there's a place where you can come and talk. The Rinse Nest mission has evolved and expanded, but it's still driven by literacy and storytelling and that. The creating of a place for people to come and express themselves and get things off their chest. That's outreach and bringing people in and you said, how do, how do we address healing? First, we have to find people that want to be healed. <laughs> and then those people that want to be healed can find comfort here. But if somebody want to hold on to their anger about the tar baby, they're not going to find comfort here. Because the tellers don't have no problem telling the tar baby. Well, I think also part of the healing is telling the truth about some of these stories. And the Tar Baby story, the original Tar Baby story, was not meant to be a racial story. And so I think a lot of people don't realize that because of what it became um, in social circles eventually. But the original uh, Uncle Remus story of the Tar Baby has absolutely nothing to do with race. It has to do with uh, the Southern culture of saying hello to each other when you walk by somebody. And so I think that's also part of the healing is, of course, not hiding anything of our past, but also making sure that everybody knows the true stories and the true history of the author, the true history of where he got the stories from, and the true history of the original stories. Right. I mean, it's ironic, right? I mean, because it is a story about tar. And that's the problem is things stick to it. Right. And right. how do you get right. it out? You know, exactly. I mean, that yeah. is, that's, that is the problem. Right. Is things accrue meaning and you can't, you can't unring the bell. You right. can't discard that meaning. Right. Disney happened, right? right? That movie happened. Right. Um, all of the decisions Harris made happened. And so you've got to work through that. It's not saying get over it, forget about it, like, but it's like you got to work through it and then try to figure out, do you want to get somewhere else? Right, right. Or do you want to stay stuck? That, exactly. Right. Do you exactly. want to stay stuck? That's, yeah. yeah. 
That's our show this week. So many thanks to Akbar and Kaylin for taking the time to talk to us and to new executive director, Melissa Swindle, for offering up her office on a Friday afternoon for the conversation. The Wren's Nest will be hosting their second annual Brewer Rabbit Blues and Barbecue Festival on November 5th. That's a Sunday afternoon and tickets will be on our website. All of the money goes to support the educational programs and the cultural mission of the Wren's Nest. If you'd like to be a mentor for one of the writing programs, if you're a writer, please reach out to Kaylin Thomas at the Wren's Nest. We'll also put a link on our website for that. They're always looking for good volunteers from our community of writers. About South is brought to you from the historic West End of Atlanta, Georgia. Joy Danso produced this episode. Kelly Vines and Lindsay Baker also work on the podcast as co-producers and social marketing gurus. Our music is by Brian Horton. You can find his music at brianhorton.com. You can find us at aboutsouthpodcast.com. You can also follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. We're off next week, but we'll be back on October 27th talking to Karen Cox about her new book, The Murder at Goat Castle. You don't want to miss it. Karen is delightful and her book is fascinating. Until then, take care. Thank you.